This is the show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve Him in their neighbor, for whom the words of the Creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is a show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. Life comes at you fast, and sometimes you just have to hang on. Sometimes you don't have enough time to look around and and get your bearings. You just have to keep going. But this isn't a sustainable thing. Uh, We have to get to a place where we can retreat into silence and to really take some time for examination. I'm reminded of the, uh, the, the Ignatian examine that several times a day you take stock of where you are and and evaluate your experiences and evaluate your struggles and your successes to look at the consolations and the desolations in your life and not just take them as they come to you, but really take a moment to look at them. And in some way, this is the work of philosophy, to think about thinking, to look at our experiences in a very particular way. And this Ignatian idea of looking at our experiences could be called phenomenology, or put another way, thinking about and and examining our experiences, our experience of life. And phenomenology is a field of philosophy that has gained prominence over the last many decades uh, and to which many prominent Catholic theologians subscribe. So I want to take a look at it a little bit today. Uh, We're going to be talking with Dr. Sam Rocha, who's an assistant professor of philosophy of education at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada, which I can see from my house but cannot get to uh, because (laughs) of the border issues. Sam, thanks for being with us today. Hey, thanks for having me again. So I first came across uh, your work back in 2014 when you put out the the Augustinian folk record, right? Late to Love. Yeah. Um, on Wise Blood Records. And then I came to know you through um, through a piece that you did with Artur Rossman on, on immigration. We had you on the show. That was the first time that we talked. That's uh, right. That was the first time that I mispronounced your name. <laughs> <laughs> Which went on for many, many episodes hey, until I, I never heard, corrected you. No, not once. Not, not once. Not off air, not on air, but, no. but I forgive you. Um, yeah. <laughs> you wrote a book recently called Folk Phenomenology. Um, mm-hmm. And now you have a podcast under the same name. And I have to, I'm going to tell you, every time I hear phenomenology, uh, I, I hear two songs in my head. Okay. One is uh, the Danny K song. They call it choreography, but it's um, instead they call it phenomenology, right? There's that one. Uh, it just kind of plays little ditty in my head. The other one, uh, the other one, of course, is from uh, the Muppets, right? Yes. Phenomena, do, 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 yeah. Phenomena. Right? Yeah. I wasn't going to yeah. hum it just in case there was like a copyright strike or something. But. Oh, sorry. Ooh, <laughs> uh, yikes. That's all right. So I think I'm in fair use. Here we, here we have this, this um, discipline of philosophy called phenomenology, uh, but not everyone is a philosopher, and so the term just kind of maybe implants itself as a, as a Muppet song, but doesn't go too much further. So before we get deep into this conversation about phenomenology and folk phenomenology, what is meant by this term, phenomenology? Sure. I mean... Um 
the word phenomenology can sometimes be a really big word that's kind of looking for a meaning. And so it's just sort of an excuse for people to paste uh, any kind of meaning to. <laughs> um, and I actually think the word um, is a dangerous word because of that. So I like to go to its most literal sense. And so if we divide the word phenomenology between the phenomena side and the ology side, it simply means the study of phenomena. And then if you ask, well, what in the world are phenomena? Phenomena is just a kind of fancy um, Greek etym et uh, etymological derivative of what we would probably say in more standard English of like an appearance. So a phenomena is just something that appears. So... Phenomenology can be said to be the study of appearances. Um, and that's kind of where, that, that's where I like to start from. Now, phenomena may be a little bit more even mundane than this. But when I think of phenomena, I think of the burning bush. This, this thing that is an appearance that is out of what I would normally expect to see. Uh, is that typically what you would think of, or does phenomenology just get into even natural phenomena, the things that are just around us all the time? So phenomenology in its history, which really starts in around 1903, 1911, uh, with a philosopher by the name of Edmund Husserl, uh, a German philosopher who is a, really a mathematician by trade. Uh, he begins in this more scientific mode of natural phenomena. So... Um, how do we come to know that the things that we perceive are in fact the things that they are? And how do we, his big kind of mantra is to the things themselves. Um, how do we reach the things themselves that appear to us uh, with as little mediation as possible in order to reduce them into their kind of transcendental essence and at that point of reduction, which in phenomenology, reduction isn't a bad word, it's a good word. Um, when we find that kind of universal place, uh, there we see something that is not only kind of individualized in the, in the object, but is something that, that transcends, in some sense, the object itself. Now, what's interesting about what you said is, if we fast forward to the end of this century, around 1997, a Catholic a philosopher and phenomenologist named Jean-Luc Marion, he starts this French theological turn, which actually says phenomenology is not just good at the natural phenomena that Husserl developed it for. We can also do theology. And in fact, the very question of God is a can be taken up as a phenomenological question. And that set off a revolution in phenomenology. And I would count myself as one of the people who very much works in within and, and accepts the theological turn because many of course rejected it uh, mm -hmm. as well and that's what every turn entails right so yeah the burning bush is included i would say yeah so let's also just come back and redefine philosophy because philosophy is just a framework by which we make sense of the world right it, it's it's um, a lens through which we we process all of the the various data that come to us i think that's true um, from Husserl to Marion to everyone else who works within, you could say, the part of the tradition that I'm friendly with. And as a tradition, um, every tradition has branches and schools, including internal conflicts, right? But those of us who feel like we're following the work that Husserl laid out, 
We believe that phenomenology is not only a philosophical tradition, but that it's a tradition of what we call first philosophy, first philosophy or prima filosofia or metaphysics. Mm-hmm. So it's not just the general sense of inquiry into things, but it's inquiry into the conditions of possibility under which things themselves become the case. So it's a very... Um, so, so this idea that phenomenology is a way to not only do first philosophy, but in Husserl's time, his argument was it was a way to return to that origin of philosophy in prima filosofia that gives us the perennial philosophy of the mm-hmm. filosofia perennis. I know a lot of people who are, who are quite devout, uh, who, sure. who would be maybe a little bit Hes- hesitant or, or reticent to embrace philosophy because in, in some way they see um, uh, maybe as a product of the Enlightenment or, or some other uh, presentation that's been given to them of what philosophy is. Uh, sure. They see it in some way as opposed to religion. And yet, sure. uh, philosophy is the language of the church. And and every priest who goes through seminary is going to spend four years, four years in philosophy before they yeah. ever touch theology. That's right. So, let's... Let's demystify this philosophy a little bit. Um, and first, let's name a few names. Um, sure. Some some Catholic phenomenologists would be St. Edith Stein. Yes. Right? Uh, Dietrich von Hildebrand. of the Cross. Right. Dietrich von Hildebrand, yes. Uh, and then, of course, Pope John Paul II also yes. was, was uh, really profoundly influenced by phenomenology. Oh, he was a full-blown phenomenologist. Uh, both his early work as Wojtyla is is a part of the personalist school, which is within the phenomenological tradition. But I would say his Wednesday lectures, which became more popular under the Theology of the Body title, was definitely a phenomenological project. And John Paul II's favorite phenomenologist was Max Scheler, who has sort of three periods of his thought, the middle period being a devoutly Catholic period, where he wrote this very, um, in my opinion, exciting book titled Resentiment, which is this kind of uh, Christian, Catholic, critical but constructive response to Nietzsche's claim that Christianity sort of ruined um, <laughs> an inverted morality. And uh, and there we see Shaler sort of accepting some of that critique, but then responding in a very forceful way. And so uh, John Paul II's favorite philosopher um, as as a young man, as Carol Wojtyla, uh, was an avid fan of Max Scheler, who was himself a student of Husserl, as was Dietrich von Hildebrand, as was Edith Stein, as, and then John Crosby, who was my teacher at Franciscan, was a student of Dietrich von Hildebrand's uh, as well. And I studied phenomenology under under Crosby and others at Franciscan University. Mm-hmm. So let's take a look and deconstruct uh, this phenomenology lens for just a moment. Sure. Um, many of us are familiar with with a kind of Thomistic approach to theology and to the world. Uh, how would the phenomenological approach differ, or or maybe um, overlap, but have some? some distinction from the Thomistic approach. Sure. Well, in many respects, they're going to share, I think, um, uh, a method. So the scholastic method, which is Thomistic, but also um, extends far beyond the Dominican tradition uh, into the Franciscan tradition. We're speaking on the very last few hours of the Feast of, of Bonaventure. 
so got to get him in there. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the, the scholastic method, uh, which was influenced by a number of things, but in particular by Aristotle and by Aristotle's philosophy, um, is important, I think, for both Thomism and for phenomenology in this particular sense. One of the things that Aristotle did in his own time is, for example, in his politics, he asked a very concrete question, which was, do all the city-states have um, the equivalence of constitutions? And people said, well, we, we're not sure. So he decided to go from polis to polis and ask, hey, who's in charge here? Mm-hmm. Do you have a constitution? And if they said yes, he would say, well, can I read it and see what it is? And if they said no, he says, well, do you have anything that would be equivalent to that? And if they did, he has to see that. And if they didn't, then he'd say, well, why don't you have one? And his politics is actually a series of notes that his students wrote on his lectures based on what he find out going polis to polis asking these questions. In other words, Aristotle's approach is very empirical. Mm-hmm. Uh, he actually was something of a marine biologist for a bit of time after he finished studying under, under Plato in Athens on his way up to, back to Macedonia before he tutored Alexander the Great. The reason I'm going on and on about Aristotle is that Aristotle's approach to philosophy was, I think, very intuitive. Just like, is, is there X? Well, where would we find X? Over there. Okay, well, let's go take a look and see. And scholasticism, the disputatio scholastic method, I think did that in a, in a conceptual way. But it was motivated oftentimes by not only theological questions often asked by predecessors like, like Augustine in many cases or the patristics, but also by common questions related to like ethical questions like how should I live or mm-hmm. uh, what makes an honorable death or um, what is the scope or range of a moral idea. And so in that sense, phenomenology, I think, is very close to scholasticism and to Thomism in that whenever it's, it says, if we want to attend to a phenomenon, we need to be able to kind of bracket around it and select it from our field of vision. We can't just attack it in a, in a vague way. We need to be able to, to give it a name and then begin to put some conceptual pressure against it. And that's the reduction. So I think the scholastic and Thomistic approach has a kind of is a kind of proto-reduction in the same way phenomenology is. The big difference between these two is that Aristotle was ultimately a a Platonist. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He was after first principles and transcendentals and ultimately essences after he did all his field work. And so he was really interested in, you could say, the objective conditions that things shared. He had some kind of gray zones, like the zone of phronesis or judgment, where you had to be able to distinguish between things. And he had subtle distinctions, like his distinction between theoria or thinking, uh, practice or action, praxis or action, and poesis or making. These are very subtle distinctions. But they were pretty categorically derived and given. Aristotle influences Thomas in this approach, and that Thomas's approach is, is very committed to an objective account uh, of things within an order or even taxonomy of, of, of things, and it builds a kind of systematic set of ideas. Mm-hmm. Phenomenology is, doesn't really work from the side of the object. It really starts from the side of the subject. And it says all of the things that, of course, um, are important about what is objective, they're filtered, as it were, through this zone called consciousness. And this zone called consciousness is not some passive cloud hanging between our ears or whatever. It's this active object-oriented thing that we call a psychology or that Plato would have called the soul. And phenomenology is more interested at starting at that zone of subjectivity, 
whereas Thomism uh, begins more from the side of objectivity. But they share a method. And I think, honestly, um, there's too many antagonisms drawn between these schools of thought uh, that I think lead to premature judgments. I think everyone should read everything with an open heart and with an open mind. And ultimately, that's what philosophy, I think, encourages for everyone. Well, in the same way that um, philosophy and theology are not at odds, you can have yes. two different approaches within philosophy that that give depth and light uh, to the topic more than, than one or the other would. Absolutely. What, what there are I find, better and worse tools for things. Sam, what I find really intriguing is this idea that we see in Pope John Paul II in his encyclicals, in his um, the, the Wednesday audiences and so much more, is this personalist trend that that really kind of turns theology uh, that, that preceded it on its head because now the object is the subject. Now it's That's coming right. from our point of view and our perspective Yes. Um, that at the very least I think resonates a little bit more strongly with the world that we live in now uh, than, than that objective approach. And I think that it can be a tool for us as we engage in conversation with those around us and with our society to be able to bring ideas that would be rejected out of hand if they were pre- presented as, a, as objective Right. And, and bring them into a light that can be more subjectively experienced. That's exactly right. And I would actually add one more pope to this, because um, phenomenology, especially Catholic phenomenologists, in this kind of late turn that I mentioned, like Jean-Luc Marion and others, uh, we, and I'm using we here because th- there's, we're, a bit, we're kind of partisans of a certain kind, um, we often find ourselves looking back to the person that began our relationship, which is Augustine. Mm-hmm. Because Augustine in his Confessions doesn't begin with the question of God from, from the side of the object. He begins by subjectively praising God. Magna est Domine. Great are you, O Lord. And, and, and so in Augustine's Confessions, we see a subject-oriented approach to God, an approach to Christ, an approach to not only the divine, but also the human. And no one, I think, here I'm going to reveal my own theological preferences. I have great affection for Carol Wojtyla and for John Paul II as a phenomenologist, but I must say, the one who really moves me as a phenomenologist is Benedict XVI as an Augustinian. I think he actually is capable of surpassing these traditions or schools of thoughts or binaries of thought um, simply by by showing us that Catholicism is in some sense always already phenomenological in that even Christ's encounter with his disciples and to each and every one of us in in, in, the, in the, that that call to a personal relationship with him is a deeply phenomenological act and so, God himself meets us as subjects and as persons. And so for me, that's where phenomenology and Christianity gets really exciting. And and I don't know if there's anyone better, if there's been anyone better since maybe Newman than Benedict XVI Mm -hmm. on this. In some way, we talk about philosophy as thinking about thinking. Uh, It seems that in some way, philosophy is thinking about what we experience. It is. Well, if if we break that down just a tiny bit more... There's no thinking outside of thinking, outside of the experience of thinking. 
Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the point the phenomenology makes is that even those who claim that they're doing more object-centered uh, philosophy or theology, they themselves can't escape their own subjectivity. They can't escape their own zone of consciousness. But this doesn't have to be a trap. This can be a great tool. This can be a, be a wonderful gift uh, as not only Augustine has shown, but as this particular tradition of the 20th century and, and now 21st century has shown us. Now, in your in your work, uh, your work yeah. as philosophy of education, uh, we've had some fantastic conversations about the order of knowledge, about a whole the whole way that we experience life epistemology. Um, in your work, you strive uh, to make the inaccessible accessible. Uh, you do that through your music. You do that through your your teaching and your lecturing. You do that through your articles, uh, and and now you have this podcast where you're taking these ideas of phenomenology and and helping the rest of us who don't have that level of education or understanding to begin to engage with phenomenology and with our own lives through phenomenology. You're doing this through a series of interviews. Um, I, I've not yet had an opportunity to listen to anything but the trailer, but I'm just really stoked about the episodes you've got coming up, coming forward. The, the podcast is called Folk Phenomenology, and the first episode is your seven-year-old asking you the same questions that I'm asking you. Exactly. She wants to know, what is folk phenomenology? You know, she asks, what is phenomenology? And then, what is it when you add the word folk to it? Yeah. And, and, she, keep, and she adds this beautiful little proviso that I don't know where she got. She would say, What's philosophy? Just plain. Just plain. <laughs> yeah, just plain. No toppings. Yeah? I love that metaphor. Just just vanilla. Um, just give me the vanilla. Just, just vanilla. Yeah, yeah. Don't don't put anything on top of it. Just just plain. A plain burger. Just cheese and, and bread and meat. Nothing else. Well, and it appears that the second episode is you talking about interviewing for over an hour. Not the not, interview itself. Not yeah. interviewing anyone, just talking about interviewing about the interview itself what is the interview so obviously we want people to go uh, over to fp.captivate.fm that's folk phenomenology fp.captivate we want them to listen to that themselves but sure. give us the 30 second what is it about the interview the interview is about the call and the response it's 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 about the fact that in the encounter, there's this grammar of, of the relation that one calls and the other one res- responds. And this responsibility, the ability to respond to the call of the other, right? That's that's what I want to call the grammar of, of the interview. But in English and in other languages, we use a different metaphor, an ocular metaphor, the interview, to look between, to look inside. Mm-hmm. And so there's this poetic play between the sort of intuitive, natural grammar uh, of the call and the response, but also this sense of insight and of looking inside and between. Um, and I want to to lay that out through examples. And so I just give examples of some of the interviews that uh, stimulated me to take up a show that's mainly interview-based um, and also talk about some people who inspired me, uh, folks that maybe some people haven't heard of, people like Nardwar, the the human serviette, uh, uh, hip hop uh, journalist, uh, people like uh, the Paris Review interviews, uh, the writer interviews and their archive there. Uh, the interview I did last summer with Gloria Purvis, mm-hmm. um, the interview that my daughter did with me. Um, 
those sorts of things. So, you know, that's the general gist of the interview. But then hopefully the listener can then take that and bring that with them into the actual interviews, which are even more direct encounter with this thing called the interview. And then they can test it and they can submit my ideas to scrutiny against the sort of real live thing. And they'll have to, of course, filter all that through that special phenomenological thing that we all have, which is our experience and our consciousness. And, uh, and my hope is that uh, less, I'm actually less invested in sort of popularizing phenomenology. I'm more interested in kind of doing it in vivo in a different setting, in a different medium, in, in, in a different way, and seeing if the ideas I had in a different medium at a different point in time if they continue to be the case, as I said them before, or if perhaps I need to change my mind and revise my ideas or, or expand them or, or what have you. It seems to, in some extent through our conversation today that really you don't have to convince someone to do phenomenology so much as to, in a, in a platonic sense, realize that they've always known it and always been doing it and just That's open right. their eyes to see that you are a subjective person experiencing the world around you. Pay attention to that. That's exactly right. And my interest in education in phenomenology is in particular the the way in which we appear to each other in this work of education. So if we take, for instance, the teacher-student relationship, whenever the teacher appears to the student, my claim is teaching has begun. They don't have to say a word. They don't have to know what they're talking about. They don't have to be very good at it. They don't have to be very bad at it. Um, but the teacher's own phenomenological presence, as it were, in the room before students um, is a pedagogical, an educational uh, reality. And so when I teach teachers about teaching, I say, don't forget to attend to those things. Because otherwise, the natural attitude tells you that you're teaching whenever you're talking about the things that you know about, that you want your students to, to know about, and then measuring for them in any series of ways. And that's not untrue, but it's a tiny part of the pic picture of what teaching entails. And so phenomenology allows them to recognize that their very presence before their students, uh, and here I, I insist that it's their presence as a person, before their students who are also persons, which demands a kind of form of equality, um, that this is a really important uh, thing about teaching. And so that's that's my work with student teachers and that's my work in education. I think my work in the podcast is similar, but it doesn't have that same hierarchical relation as we find between teacher and student. Yeah, I want to explore that idea a little bit further. We're up against a break here, but let's return to that just in a moment. Uh, we're talking today with Sam Rocha, who is the Assistant Professor of Philosophy of Education at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. He's also the, the host of a new podcast, Folk Phenomenology. You can find it at fp.captivate.fm. Join the ongoing conversation on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at outside the walls. Talk to me about your experiences. How do you see the world? There's much more right after this. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Outside the Walls with T.L. Putnam.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implication of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, TL. We're talking today with Dr. Sam Rocha, the Assistant Professor of Philosophy of Education at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. Uh, We're talking about his new podcast, Folk Phenomenology. And Sam, right before uh, the break, you were talking about the, the teacher beginning to teach at the very moment that they present themselves where they appear before the students. And and the first thought, I've got a couple of thoughts on that. The first thought that came to my mind uh, is one of Eucharistic adoration. Yes. The moment that we come into the presence and the presence of God appears to us or or going to mass and the host is elevated uh, and behold the Lamb of God. At that very moment, the communion has already begun. Something profound is happening. That's right. Uh, The second thought that I had um, is going back to that, that understanding of teachers, we all intuitively know that a teacher teaches from the very moment they start by looking at a classroom that isn't managed well, right? That a teacher sure. who doesn't appear in, in a teaching mode the moment they appear, right? The class is going wild. Uh, my, my wife was a, a education uh, major in, in school and read this book, The First Days of School, Right. Uh-huh. Uh, that that apparently every teacher in the world has ever read, and it talks okay. about that whole idea of class classroom management of sure. having something ready as soon as the children come in. That you know, there's there there's no dead time. That as soon as they appear to you, the teacher, they have begun their learning, and so it's yes. maybe looking at it from the other direction. And then the last thought I had, and this is the one I think I want you to to um, run with is this idea of us as ambassadors and as witnesses and as Catholics that the moment that someone sees our bumper sticker or sees the rosary hanging in uh, in the rearview mirror or finds out that we have any kind of faith at all, we are already giving our witness. And the question is, what kind of a witness, what kind of an ambassador are we going to be uh, in this in their experience of of us as phenomena. Yes, no, this is, I think this is at the very heart, actually, of the pastoral understanding of scandal. Um, I was taught this by uh, a fairly strict uh, priest, Father John O'Malley, who, who baptized me. And he was always very clear that scandal doesn't mean you did anything wrong. Scandal is avoiding giving people the impression that you could have done something wrong. Um, and that for those who had uh, any ministerial or pastoral role, that that was a standard he expected of them. And if they couldn't meet that standard, then they could uh, uh, they could just go back and sit in the pew and do, you know, it doesn't mean they're bad. It just meant that they were not going to be on his pastoral team. Um, and I think that that criterion is a is a criterion that's very attentive to the 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 sense of appearance that is in some ways a bit more demanding than a criterion of mere justice, you might say. Mm-hmm. Um, because appearances can be reasonably true or untrue. Uh, they can work out or not work out. But there is a kind of primal truth of that first impression, that first appearance. And it kind of leaves a residue even on corrective experiences later. And so I think within the church, for uh, those of us who profess our faith, 
need to be attentive to the fact that if we're not prepared to live a Christian life, we may want to hide the fact that we go to church. <laughs> because, you know, we would never want anyone to, to, to you know, uh, uh, be misled, perhaps. Um, and uh, at, on the other hand, if we... Um, uh, if, if we if we do plan to have you know our uh, our scapular you know popping out of the shirt or what have you or you know these signs of piety which are true in parts of our daily life then we need to be prepared, prepared to live like it and to be prepared to give witness and testimony uh, to our faith by our life. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned that one of the thoughts that that comes up um, that we have to be aware of appearances, but there are some folks who are very aware of appearances and, uh-huh. and try to, uh, to shape an appearance that maybe isn't reflective of reality. How does phenomenology deal with, with the duplicitous? Oh, this is great. Um, yes. So phenomenology, uh, uh, quickly, uh, gets a bit wise to the naivete of the first impression and realizes that, you know, you can fake it, uh, a first impression, and you can give, in fact, an intentional wrong, an intentionally wrong first impression. Uh, and so, the question of authenticity uh, is really important because the appearance is only a phenomenological appearance if it's in some sense true. And so, well, the first you could say step of the method of phenomenology is to put aside the natural attitude. So, what that means is to say, this is what the appearance says in the natural attitude and kind of ordinary life. Let's set that to the side. What is it really saying, right? And so applying a certain amount of scrutiny even to the appearance itself and not, it's, this isn't about just accepting naive first impressions all the time. It's about realizing though that in that naive first impression, there is a phenomenon that we can apply reduction to, scrutiny, uh, a certain amount of critical thought. And with that, we're going to uncover something uh, there. And what we might uncover is, in fact, insincerity and dishonesty and even perhaps um, uh, dishonesty or lying, deception. So I want to come to this uh, this topic of the podcast now. Uh, yeah. You have several episodes that are coming out over the next several weeks. Yeah. Where you are testing ideas through conversation with people and through their experience. Give us kind of a snapshot of what, what's the roadmap that you're going on as through these interviews? Who are you, sure. who are you talking to? Maybe give us uh, some highlights of, of uh, what we can expect by going to fp.captivate.fm for the Folk Phenomenology Podcast. Absolutely. So and, this week... Sorry, go ahead. Well, and, and the last thought is... Um, is there a specific thing that you're trying to get at over the course of these interviews, or is it simply looking at uh, various and disparate experiences? Um, yeah, so there are there are two things, um, but to first kind of give you a run through. So there's so there's 20 episodes in season one. It's going to run from July 6th, which already came and passed. Uh, that was the, the 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 monologue on the interview, all the way to November 16th. Uh, so 20 episodes. The one with my daughter is the episode zero. So it's kind of outside of even the season one. And there's 12 interviews. Uh, this week, we have an interview with Jeannie Gaffigan talking about her book, uh, When Life Gives You Pears. 
And moving, when life gives you pears, is actually about a brain tumor mm -hmm. that was a, the shape of a pear. So moving into this area of the tragicomic and the way in which actually comedy not only reveals human suffering, but even perhaps takes us into divine comedy and asking really edgy questions like, is there a comedy of the passion uh, and that kind of stuff. Um, and so that's the episode with Jeannie Gaffigan. Next week, uh, Kaya Oaks, uh, teacher of writing at, at UC Berkeley, uh, Catholic writer. Uh, she's going to be talking about writing and composition and about really the rigors of, of, of writing. And, and I, as a writer, had asked her at, to work with some of my work as an editor. And she, you know, kicked me around the block. And so I <laughs> loved that and asked her to come and talk to me about that. Um, we have Sarah Hogarth Rossiter talking about philosophy and math and in particular medieval logic and, and certain aspects of medieval scholastic logic that have been neglected by mod modern logicians but also about math pedagogy with children and, and her love of mathematics and her mom as a math teacher. Um, the next episode I guess I'll talk about is the one with v Vanessa Zuleta Goldman, where we talk about um, the documents coming out of the Council of Medellin uh, after Vatican II. And she, we're supposed to be talking about essentially liberation theology, but it turns into this almost religious experience in and of itself where she's really just professes her love for Christ and, and her relationship with Jesus and with God. And it's it's really kind of this episode that just kind of, it's just blew me completely away. It was like, it, it became almost like an act of worship. Mm -hmm. um, I also have some debates. I debate David Gray on critical race theory. I debate Dean Dentloff on communism. I debate, I debate uh, Trent Horn on capitalism. Um, and uh, with Trent and I, we've been around the block already, so yeah, yeah. we're uh, uh, we're you know doing it again. Um, I have a few more monologues where I talk a bit about debate, like what is debate for me, um, and then uh, I end the whole season with an episode on this archetypes of Miles Davis and John Coltrane and distinguishing them. There's two takeaways and then one motto of the show that. The first two takeaways are really about folk phenomenology for me in general, which apply to my book as much as to my podcast. Um, folk phenomenology is built on two concrete claims. The first claim is that art precedes metaphysics. Poesis, or to make, for me is the origin of the metaphysical. Um, whether it's God making, that poetic act of the creator, or the anthropology of the hand, um, which I think precedes the heart and the head for, for humans. The second claim, though, that kind of fleshes that idea that art precedes metaphysics is that love is the only transcendental. Hmm. So beauty, truth, and goodness are wonderful. But I argue that if God is love, then it follows that love is the only transcendental. And that really the, the Christian ideal breaks even the Hellenic, Platonic model of the transcendentals. And that is sort of the second claim. What these lead to is the motto of the show, which is not in the book, but the motto of the show is taken from Jerome's Vulgate from the 4th century, uh, Sic Deus Delexi Mundum, uh, John 3.16, For God mm -hmm. So Loved the World. But I just extract Delexi Mundum, which just means loved the world or love the world. And the word that Jerome chooses is Delexi. It's the word we use for delect, saying this plate was delectable, mm -hmm. that, that God so delighted delected in the world. And that's what gives us Christ. And so the point of the show is to 
argue for a kind of love of the world, a kind of amor mundi that goes a bit deeper than agape or the other forms of love that we've traditionally understood through the Greek vocabulary and enters into this Latinate Jerome kind of later idea of dilexit mundum, to delight in the world. And so all these interactions and these encounters with the people on the show show this moment of encounter, but also delight between two people that hopefully lead us to better love the world as God so loved the world. So my last question for you today, uh, a lot of times we think of of this idea of conversation and loving conversation and uh, an interview in a in a in a positivist light, right? That we're uh-huh. we're engaging with people like I do, right? We're engaging yeah, yeah, with yeah. people that we enjoy and we like to talk to, and we we and, um, build up the ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you're doing that, and you're also doing debate, where you scrutinize ideas and wrestle with them, and and try to pin maybe your opponent down on a specific topic. Absolutely. Let's yeah. talk a little bit uh, in the last, what, two minutes that we have. What does sure. it mean to love the world in the midst of debate and, and mm. dissonance rather than strictly in those things that we, we like and we enjoy? Yeah. One way to think of philosophy is, is a particular love of argument. And I think today we've taken the idea of argumentation and argument out of its truly uh, beautiful place of the disputation. Disputatio was the word in the Middle Ages for the scholastic uh, disputation method. And we've turned it into this kind of petty fighting. But the ability for two people to enter into robust agonistic disagreement doesn't entail antagonism. Agonism is not antagonism. And the disagreement doesn't entail absolute disagreement on all matters. It only entails the disagreement upon the things that are in front of you. And of course, rich, deep disagreement is always seeking to show the opponent how much you agree with them so that you can kind of minimize your burdens down to this one little thing. And so I find that the the joy of debate is actually losing as much um, weight on your argument as you can and giving it to your opponent happily so that you can really press on the one piece that you want to keep. And that method, I think, can be done very joyfully. And I think that it can be done with a great deal of delight. But it's certainly, I think you're absolutely right, it's 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 something of a lost art these days. And so as much as the interviews for me, the interviews are cool because all the people I interview, they're actually pushing back on me far harder than I ever push my debate sparring partners. <laughs> Jeannie on the first question basically says, that's a horrible question. Ask a better question. <laughs> like, you know, um, and I love that. I love the, the, the idea that, that, that we can find ourselves in an encounter that's not saccharine and that's not candied and that's not inauthentic and, and, and dishonest, but can nonetheless carry this deep, passionate uh, capacity for love, not only human, but even divine love. Yeah. The podcast is Folk Phenomenology. The host we've been talking with is Sam Rocha, Assistant Professor of Philosophy of Education at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. And man, that's a mouthful. Sam, it's yeah. always such a pleasure to have you on. Hey, it's great to be on your show all the time. It's always a good time. If you missed any part of my show with Sam Rocha, you want to go back and listen to it again or share it with your friends on social media, have no fear. All of our episodes are archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. 
Uh, there you can find multiple episodes where we've had conversations with Sam Rocha. You just go to the right-hand side of the page, scroll down until you see his name. He's in the doctor section, Dr. Sam Rocha. Uh, there you can listen to all the episodes we've had him on, or the one right at the top of the page this week is going to be this episode that you just heard. Now, each and every week, we have an extra segment specifically for our Patreon audience, those who support the show and keep us on the air. Uh, this week, we got kind of carried away. There's 20 minutes of extra uh, conversation with Sam Rocha. You can find that by going to OutsideTheWalls.com. Right up in the top right-hand corner of the page, you'll see a link that says Patreon Support the Show. Click that link and learn how you can become a part of that community and get access to that extra segment. Let's go ahead now and turn our attention to our readings from Scripture and from church history. That's the sound of our Verbum Library launching up. Verbum helps you read Scripture in light of church teaching, putting the magisterium at your fingertips. Learn more by going to verbum.com. Today's reading from Scripture comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6. The apostles gathered together with Jesus and reported all they had done and taught. He said to them, Come away by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. People were coming and going in great numbers, and they had no opportunity to even eat. So they went off in the boat by themselves to a deserted place. People saw them leaving, and many came to know about it. They hastened there on foot from all the towns and arrived at the place before them. When he disembarked and saw the vast crowd, his heart was moved with pity for them, for they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. That reading comes from the Gospel of Mark, and we talked just a little bit in the episode about this Ignatian imaginative prayer, and this just is the, the, the process of putting yourself in that place in the story, not reading from a place of uh, needing to glean information, but reading for the sake of experience. And so, in this case, we have some questions. What do you think? You're looking at this, the disciples are coming back, the context is that Jesus had sent them out two by two, and they are returning to give him a report. They're exhausted, they've been on a trip, and so what does that look like? Well, I can imagine, after the disciples have all returned, uh, there would probably be a little bit of uh, an aroma that followed the disciples around. Uh, I know when my children just go outside to play for a few minutes, they come in, it's like, ooh, child, I smell you from across the room, right? So here you have these, these disciples who have been uh, traversing the countryside and preaching and doing miracles, and they're coming to give Christ a report. They haven't had a moment to freshen up, right? I wonder what time of year it was. This is where the imaginative prayer comes in. We have to maybe fill in those pictures. Uh, maybe it was a, a hot summer day. Maybe it was a cool spring day. Maybe it had rained recently. I don't have that picture. But what I do know is that they got in a boat. And uh, I've had the opportunity to be on a sailboat before. I, I have a little canoe that I take out with, uh, with the family. I, I can hear the sound of the water lapping up against the boat. As we enter in to this experience, to be a part of the story and not merely to read the story from a distance, there is something profound that happens as, as the scriptures 
through the Holy Spirit, teach us a lesson that we would not have gotten just from a purely academic exercise of reading Scripture and figuring out what this word means or that word means, but coming to really encounter Scripture. And this, I am convinced, is something that the Holy Spirit wants to do with each of us, to help us see Scripture not as a story that happened a long time ago, but as something that we can enter into and be nourished by this encounter with the living God, with the living Word, who, the the Catechism says, that Jesus is that single Word, the Word of God, that every other passage, every other bit of Scripture is an elaboration on that single utterance. So I want to encourage you this week uh, to pull out your Bible, maybe just read the readings for the day, but do so in a way that engages with the encounter and the experience and the phenomena of that particular reading. Now, uh, as soon as uh, Dr. Rocha mentioned the, the confessions, I knew that our reading from church history today had to come from St. Augustine's Confessions. Urged to reflect upon myself, I entered under your guidance into the inmost depth of my soul. I was able to do so because you were my helper. On entering into myself, I saw, as it were, with the eye of the soul, what was beyond the eye of the soul, beyond my spirit, your immutable light. It was not the ordinary light perceptible to all flesh, nor was it merely something of greater magnitude, but still essentially akin, shining more clearly and diffusing itself everywhere by its intensity. No, it was something entirely distinct, something altogether different from all these things, and it did not rest above my mind as oil on the surface of the water, nor nor was it above me as the heaven is above the earth. This light was above me because it had made me. I was below it because I was created by it. He who has come to know the truth knows this light. O eternal truth, true love and beloved eternity, you are my God. To you do I sigh day and night. When I first came to know you, you drew me to yourself so that I might see that there were things for me to see, but that I myself was not yet ready to see them. Meanwhile, you overcame the weakness of my vision, sending forth most strongly the beams of your light, and I trembled at once with love and dread. I learned that I was in a region unlike yours and far distant from you, and I thought I heard your voice from on high, I am the food of grown men. Grow then, and you will feed on me. Nor will you change me into yourself like bodily food, but you will be changed into me. I sought a way to gain the strength which I needed to enjoy you, but I did not find it until I embraced the mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who is above all God blessed forever. He was calling me, saying, I am the way of truth. I am the life. 
He was offering the food which I lacked the strength to take, the food he had mingled with our flesh, for the word became flesh, that your wisdom, by which you created all things, might provide milk for us children. Late have I loved you, O beauty ever ancient, ever new. Late have I loved you. You were within me, but I was outside. And it was there that I searched for you. In my unloveliness, I plunged into the lovely things which you created. You were with me, but I was not with you. Created things kept me from you, yet if they had not been in you, they would have not been at all. You called, you shouted, and you broke through my deafness. You flashed, you shone, and you dispelled my blindness. You breathed your fragrance on me. I drew in breath, and now I pant for you. I have tasted you. Now I hunger and thirst for more. You touched me, and I burned for your peace. That reading comes from the Confessions by St. Augustine. That's out of uh, chapters, book 7 and book 10. And what, (laughs) reading this after this conversation about phenomenology, what an amazing experience that is. It's very visceral. It has a a very strong connotation of that, that delectability, that deep desire for the presence and the encounter of God. And this, I think, is truly what it means for us to be devout, for it, what it means for us to, to, to come to know Christ is to be intimately connected to him in our desire for him. That we, like, like the, the reading that we had from the gospel, that we are both the disciples returning with joy to our Lord, to Christ, but we're also the crowd who doesn't want to see him go away into a secret place, but wants to be with him. And that same compassion that he had for his disciples, wanting them to have a rest and to take them away, he, he also has for the crowd as he turned and looked with them with compassion and taught them many things. We find ourselves both in the disciples and in the crowd, both needing to experience something particular from Christ. And so I encourage you this week to find ways to interact with Scripture in that Ignatian, imaginative way, but also to rest with this idea that God wants to connect with us in a way that we have never even imagined, to give us an experience of a phenomena of his presence that will carry us through our day, through our week, and through our lives. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for taking the time to tune in, to listen. Go and listen to Sam Roach's podcast, Folk Phenomenology. You can find it at fp.captivate.fm. Today's show is brought to you by Anil Thomas and all of those who support the show through Patreon. Go to outsidethewalls.com, click that Patreon link, and join their numbers. And until next week, let nothing disturb you. Let nothing affright you. All things are passing, but God is unchanging. Patience obtains all things. Who has God lacks nothing. God alone suffices.